Would you please open up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there should be one in a pew rack close by. And if you're going to use that pew Bible, then you'll find Mark, chapter 1, on page 990. I want you to turn on your imaginations with me. I want you to imagine that you are a resident of ancient Rome. It's the first century, and as a resident of Rome, you grew up in a very religious home. Your family worshipped many gods and took part in all the religious festivals to the gods, but above all of those gods, you, along with everyone else, worship one in particular, and that one God among all the gods is the emperor himself. He is like a God with flesh on. He is more than a man, but less than a God. There are songs written about him. There are festivals for him to honor him. There are legends and mythologies built around the emperor. You're a part of this cult, so to speak, around this one human being. And you're just like everyone else around you, just like all of your neighbors. Everyone's very religious. Everyone thinks of the gods. Everyone makes sacrifices. Everyone worships. And then one day, you meet someone different, and they tell you a story you've never heard before. They tell you about Jesus. And you heard for the first time That there isn't many gods, there's one God. And you heard that that God took on flesh, his name was Jesus. He's not the emperor, he was a poor peasant from the area around Jerusalem. And this person tells you about Jesus' life, about how he died, about why he died, and that three days after he died, he rose again. And that there's a promise extended to you and everyone else who would believe in Jesus that if you would believe in him, you'll be forgiven your sin, you'll be given eternal life. Things between you and the one God will be right and they will be right forever because of God. And so you believe this and your life is utterly changed. You're still a Roman citizen, still with all your Roman background, still around your Roman neighbors, But you're now a Roman who's a follower of Jesus. And your life is transformed. You begin to meet regularly with other followers of Jesus in Rome. You're astonished to find out there are followers of Jesus everywhere. And in the little ragtag group of Christians that come together for worship on a regular basis, you have poor people and wealthy people. And you have uh, foreign people and you have Roman centurions. You have people from all walks of life who find common value, equal value in their faith in Jesus Christ. And things are so exciting as the church grows and and when you gather to meet and worship together. Uh, One time you receive a letter from Paul, the Paul. And then another time you get a visit from Peter, the Peter. And through these guys and other teachers, they pour into you the knowledge of Jesus and what it means to be his follower. Your soul is on fire with this good news and with this experience in Christ. And then, 
almost overnight, the tide of public opinion changes against you and all Christians like you. The Emperor Nero decides that he's going to blame this tiny Jewish sect, Christians, for a fire in the city. And as a result, you and your fellow worshipers become enemy number one of the state. You are considered uh, treasonous people. You are considered blasphemers. And all of a sudden, you are in the crosshairs of every authority in the Roman Empire. And suddenly it becomes more and more difficult to meet. And suddenly when you start to meet, there are people missing. And there are stories about Christians who are killed in brutal ways. All because they're simply followers of Jesus Christ, falsely accused by the empire of treason against the emperor. And then it lands on your doorstep. You lose your job. You lose your property. You lose your home. You're forced to go live in caves with other Christians, forage for food, try to find a way to make it by. And you've got a family to take care of all at the same time, and things are growing increasingly difficult for you as a follower of Jesus. And day after day gets harder and harder, and your numbers become thinner and thinner as more and more of your brothers and sisters are fed to wild animals and killed by the authorities. And you're at your breaking point. Why, is this really worth it? Is it really worth seeing your family struggle and suffer? Is it really worth living in this constant threat all around you for this nomadic Jewish man from Galilee? A lot of people have turned away from the church and gone back to their Rome-worshipping ways, and it was easy for them to do that. And suddenly it becomes more and more appealing to you. If you would just say no to all of this and go back, then you could have a home back. You could have a job. You, you wouldn't be a wanted person anymore. Your kids could be well protected and well taken care of. And I mean, after all, this Christianity stuff, it, it was really exciting in the beginning, but it, it's not nearly as established as you might think it was. I mean, there's not... In some sort of building that you meet in. You just met in people's homes. At least all the Roman gods have temples. And there's no statues of Jesus, but there's statues of Roman gods all over the place. And so you begin to think to yourself, I, I, I can't do it anymore. We've got to change. I'm going back. I've got to do, I've got to get myself on the right side of history for the sake of my family. And then you hear through your little network, hey, a parchment's arrived. We've got this little book that came, and, and it's come from John Mark. And we're getting everyone together, and we're going to read what John Mark has to say. And so you go to this meeting thinking that this might be your last time gathering with these people. You're just at the end of yourself. Your endurance is completely finished. Your hope is gone. You only see one way out of all of this suffering. And so you go and you meet with your brothers and sisters and the leader among you stands up and unrolls the scroll and says these words. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel of Mark meets us today 
in the same way it met its original audience. You probably come in here today carrying some baggage with you, a little or a lot. You may come in today with doubts and fears and anxieties and concerns. Your walk with Christ, perhaps it's costing you something to be faithful to the Jesus of the Bible. And there are always challenges to our faith, schemes that Satan puts in our way to try and divert us, to pull us away. And today we meet with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the gospel of Mark is for Christians who are beat up, train wrecks, total messes, Because in the Gospel of Mark, we meet a Jesus who loves those people on the outside, loves those people who are broken and at the end of themselves. And the Gospel of Mark is for Christians who are lousy disciples. You just feel like you get it wrong all the time. In the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus who is patient and intentional with disciples who mess up over and over again. And the Gospel of Mark is for those people who are not Christians but want to understand more about who Jesus is. Maybe you've been religious for the majority of your life, but you're not really a follower of Jesus. Well, in these pages, in the Gospel of Mark, we see those on the outside come to faith in Jesus, like a Roman centurion who calls Jesus the Son of God. So the Gospel of Mark is for every person who wants to know Jesus more intimately. It is for a broad audience of readers. All of us fit the intended audience today. And today we start a long journey in this gospel, and I hope you will make every effort to be with us as often as possible. And when you're not with us, to be in the gospel for yourself as we as a family have this collective study and collective conversation about the glories of Christ, his life, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection The opening verses of Mark's gospel introduce us to God's agenda. And God's agenda is completely and totally salvation. And so when Mark writes for the sake of a church that is um, almost snuffed out by persecution, he writes to strengthen these persecuted Christians with a picture of God's saving work. And so my goal today, as we start in the gospel of Mark, is that you would be energized, you would be astonished, you would be amazed at God's saving work on your behalf through Jesus Christ. And to do that, I want to highlight for you from these first eight verses three aspects of God's saving work that should set our souls on fire. I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, 
the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let me highlight for you from this passage three aspects of God's saving work that is so amazing. The first aspect, if you're taking notes, is this. God's saving work is radical good news. Verse 1, only verse 1, God's saving work is radical good news. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a great place for us to start to make sense of a very important word. Right in the middle of verse 1 is the word gospel. And we need to make sure we know what that word gospel means. I could call on any number of you. You could come up here and share with us the meaning of the word gospel, and I'm grateful for that. But there are some of you that perhaps you've been in church for a long time, maybe not so long, and some of this is new to you. And so we're going to take a quick minute just to make sure we're all on the same page with the word gospel. I'll give you two different ways of understanding the word gospel. First, the word gospel can mean a type of literature. That's one thing it's come to mean in biblical studies. The Bible is made up of many different genres or types of literature. There's historical narrative. There's poetry. There's wisdom literature. There's apocalyptic literature. There is gospel literature. And so sometimes we'll use the word gospel to describe a type of writing, a type of literature in the Bible. Now, there are four books in the Bible that meet this category of gospel. They're the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these gospels, they tell history, not mythology. They tell true facts. The things written in Mark actually happened. None of it is fictional. John the Baptist is an actual, real person, really lived, walked on this earth. We know how he died. So everything written in the Gospels is factual and true. And the Gospels are, in a way, biographical in that they tell us about the life and the teachings, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they're, they're kind of biographical, but they're not biographies. Their intention is not just to, to give us the full scope of the life of Jesus, because they don't do that. But we do learn things about Jesus Perhaps a better way to describe them would be Gospels are historical theologies. So when we say they're historical, we're saying they're, they're telling true stories, true facts. To say they're theologies is to say they give us an interpretation of those happenings. What does it mean that Jesus was born of a virgin? That God took on flesh and dwelt among us for a while? What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? Or that he is called Jesus the Christ. The Gospels explain that. They help us understand their historical theologies. The Gospels give us four different perspectives on the life of Jesus. You might think, why do we have four? Don't we, couldn't we get by with just one? Well, maybe we could, but that's not how God planned it. They write to different audiences. Matthew wrote his Gospel for the sake of people from a Jewish background. Mark wrote for Christians from a Roman background. Luke wrote for people from a Gentile background. John wrote his gospel for the whole world. He wants everyone to take it in. These four different perspectives on, on the ministry of Jesus are all inspired by God, all of them written in truth. And what about our author, Mark? 
Well, the early church agreed unanimously that a man named John Mark wrote this gospel. And here's what we know about John Mark. His mother's name was Mary. Her home in Jerusalem was a meeting place for the early church. Acts chapter 12 tells us about this. His name, John Mark. Well, John is a Hebrew name, which means God's gift. Mark is a Roman name. It means polite or shining. And as a young man, John Mark accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey, but he got homesick, decided he wanted to go home early, and royally ticked off Paul. Paul was not happy about it one bit. Later on, Paul and John Mark would be reconciled. Paul would speak of John Mark and say, he's useful to me in my ministry. But for a while, there was not a big exchange of Christmas gifts between the two. Uh, the early church also held that uh, Mark was a ministry associate of Peter. In this gospel, we'll see Peter highlighted often. Not always as a sympathetic figure or a hero figure, for sure. But he gets a lot of press, a lot of spotlight in the gospel of Mark. And it's believed that Peter, his stories and experiences with Jesus were Mark's source material for his gospel. Now, the word gospel has a second meaning, and I think a far more important meaning. Rather than just a type of literature, it means good news. And before the gospel was a church word, it was a political word. It was used in the Roman Empire, and it was used to describe the birth of the emperor and all the good that he brought to the citizens of his empire. But Christians knew that no mere finite human was worthy of the word gospel, good news. But rather the one who created the Caesars, the emperors, Augustus, Tiberius, and Nero, that one is the one who truly brings good news. And the good news is that God loves sinners in this way. He sent his only son to die in our place for our sin. He rose from the dead, and whoever calls on his name will be saved. Saved from sin, saved from all of our brokenness, set on a trajectory for healing and eternal life. God wins. That's the good news. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Mark makes it clear from the beginning that this good news is about one person. It comes through one person exclusively, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Good news doesn't belong on many different religious paths. Good news doesn't come from many different ways. It comes through one person alone, through Jesus Christ. And so Mark calls him in verse 1, Jesus Christ. Jesus is his name given at his birth. Christ is a title. It's not his last name, not his middle name. It's not what his parents called him. It's a title. Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah or anointed one. It means he's the one chosen by God, set apart by God for the work of salvation. Mark also calls him the Son of God in verse 1. This is a crucial title for the deliverer. It takes our view of Jesus and elevates it to a much higher level. The title Son of God reveals Jesus' unique relationship with God. He alone is the Son of God. There's no one else. And in this title, we're confronted with the preexistence of Jesus as well as the deity of Jesus. The one called Son of God is indeed very God. 
verse 1 is absolutely remarkable. And rather than sleepily glossing over it, we should read that, put our Bible down, and take a victory lap. Because it meets us in a context of human sin and brokenness. And it's in the face of every human heartache, all persecution, and every sinful act that Mark says, I have good news to share with you. And what a bold statement. Now, how can Mark make such a claim and not first ask you about the junk you're going through? How can he say, I've got good news when your week has not been good news? Well, I'll tell you how. He knows this is good news because death is conquered and evil is defeated and forgiveness, righteousness, and life everlasting belong to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Your week may have been brutal, but there is a story that encapsulates all of that, that redefines all human suffering and heartache and sorrow and sin. God has been victorious over it all. Jesus Christ radically redefines the experience of human suffering and sin. So that our brokenness is redeemed, our sin is forgiven, death has no claim on the life of the follower of Jesus Christ. That's why this is good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it's good news for you. And man, how our world needs this good news. In a month where we are burying teenagers and their teachers, when our neighbors become our enemies because of their political views, when our hope is in government and policies and politicians, our world needs the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to save. It is radical good news that God has done this saving work. Let me share with you a second aspect of God's saving work. God's saving work is a promise made. It is a promise made in verses 2 and 3. In these verses, we're met with some Old Testament prophecy. And this saving work through Jesus began long before Jesus. This promise was made long before him. It was a promise made by God to his afflicted people, to his sinful people, that he would send them a sign so that they would know when the time had come for the Messiah's arrival. And that sign would be a messenger. So look at verses 2 and 3. Mark says, It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So Mark says these lines are from the prophet Isaiah, and that's right in part, but he actually pulls from three places. He puts together this quote from a line in Exodus, from a line in Malachi, as well as a line from Isaiah. He just uh, footnotes the most prominent of those, perhaps. And so the first line in verse 2 comes from Exodus 23 and Malachi chapter 3. So Exodus chapter 23, verse 20, listen to it. God promises to lead his newly liberated people to the promised land. 
And he says, see, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way, to bring you to the place I have prepared. So even in Exodus, God is leading his people by his messenger to the promised land. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, is also where Mark pulls from for this quote. God's speaking to his wayward people, his sinful people. And at the end of chapter 2 of Malachi, he says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So to a sinful people, a wayward people, who are calling evil good and who are accusing God of improper action or lack of action, in light of that sinfulness, God says, I'm going to send my messenger and I'm going to come. The messenger of the covenant will lead the way. The last reference in verse 3, it comes from Isaiah. And I want you to hear the quote that, that Mark uses sandwiched in between the lines before and the lines after. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Here's the quote Mark uses. A voice of one calling. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain will be made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So God promises a messenger. That messenger is not the Messiah. The messenger's job is to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord and to announce the coming of the Messiah. And this messenger is a promised sign. So when you hear the messenger, then you'll know the Messiah is near. Now, we learn a little bit about the nature of salvation from the Old Testament references Mark uses. From Exodus, we learn that this salvation is the work of God and God alone. He's the prime mover in it. In Malachi, this salvation is grace to sinful people. In Isaiah, God's salvation is comfort for broken people. And with these quotes from Exodus, Malachi, and Isaiah, it's clear that all the law and all the prophets testify to a salvation that will be won by God and announced by his messenger. Several years ago, I had the chance uh, while on a trip to Uganda to do some teaching one day, uh, and we were in a tiny, tiny village church in the middle of nowhere, and it was hot, and this was a building made with clay bricks, and there were, uh, there's no electricity, and uh, there's no running water on the premises, 
But inside this uh, handmade church building, there was a battery-powered clock hanging right in front of the pulpit. I took offense to that quite personally. (laughs) But uh, the intention of the morning was to do this broad survey of the Old Testament. And so we, we had spent a lot of time in it already. Uh, we had had several discussions about different aspects of the Old Testament. And then uh, one gentleman raised his hand kind of towards the end of the day, and he, he said, what's the point of learning the Old Testament if we have Jesus in the New Testament? Don't we have all we need in the New Testament? And so my answer to him is the same as my answer to you. The entire Old Testament bears witness to Jesus Christ. If we don't have the Old Testament, we're not going to recognize Jesus in the New Testament. And so Exodus, Isaiah, Malachi, Genesis all the way through testifies to a coming Savior for God's people. God promises this Savior. And for years and years and years, God's people anticipated the fulfillment of that promise. God's promises are always connected to our need for Him. Sometimes that need is for deliverance. Other times it's repentance. Still, there's comfort to be found here that God knows our needs long before they're even on our radar. And God is setting things in place for our deliverance, for our sanctification, for our salvation. Have you ever thought about how amazing it is that God chooses to make known His promises to us? He isn't obligated to promise us anything. He isn't required to let us know that there's a promise that has a future fulfillment. But he does. What amazing grace God gives to his children. So I think these promises add to our endurance. They strengthen us in our weakness. They're a source of hope for God's people. And God's promises are not wishes. They are not maybes. They are yes every time. If you have a promise from God, you have a yes from God. He keeps his promises. God's saving work is radical good news. God's saving work was a promise made long ago and repeated over and over again to God's people who needed him. And finally, God's saving work is a promise fulfilled. It's a promise made and it is a promise fulfilled in verses 4 through 8. So the promise is for a messenger. This is like a sign. This is how you know the Messiah is near. The Messiah has come. My messenger will prepare the way. And I love how verse 4 opens. And so John came. There it is. We've got this big Old Testament prophecy, this promise it's giving. So John came, baptizing in the desert region, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's clear that Mark sees John the Baptist as the fulfillment of this prophecy. And that with the presence of John the Baptist on the scene, the Messiah is close by as well. Now Mark doesn't give us a lot of background on John the Baptist, but we know a few things about him. We know that his mother's name is Elizabeth, his father's name is Zechariah, Luke chapter 1 gives us a bit more biographical information about John the Baptist and his beginnings. His parents were never able to have a child until one day um, God performs a miracle and Elizabeth, late in years, 
uh, is impregnated by her husband, and they have this baby boy, and his name is John, and he's got a divine purpose from before he is conceived. John the Baptist was a cousin to Jesus, but he didn't treat Jesus like any old cousin. John knows that Jesus is the Messiah. And John's ministry is unique. Verse 4 tells us that he's preaching repentance and baptism. Verse 5 tells us that people from all over came to him. They're leaving the city of Jerusalem. They're walking out into this wilderness, this desert area, to hear what John has to say and to be baptized by John. Now, the, the center of the Jewish universe is in Jerusalem. It's the temple. And yet, these people are walking away from that to John preaching in the wilderness, and there they are confessing sin and they are being baptized. In verses 7 through 8, we get a small transcript of one of John's sermons. Look at it with me. This was John's message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John compares himself to Jesus, and he concludes, there's no comparison to be made here. Jesus is more powerful than John. John's not even worthy to perform a servant's task and untie the sandals of the Messiah. What's more, John baptizes with water as an outward symbol. That's important. That's a big deal. But it pales in comparison to what Jesus will do. John baptizes as an outward symbol, but the one greater than John will bring an inner baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, my Pentecostal family reads this line a different way, applies it a different way, and I think ultimately in an incorrect way. When it talks about, they'll talk about a second baptism, laying on of hands, evidenced by speaking in tongues. Another conversation for another day, perhaps. But what John gives, excuse me, what Mark gives us here is a picture of the power of Jesus. John's baptizing by water. He, he can't affect this inner transformation, though. John's abilities are tremendously limited. There's only one who's going to be able to do this soul transformational work, the Messiah who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus, I wonder, how often do you think of your salvation as a baptism in the Holy Spirit? I don't think we do. I don't hear that language very often. I don't use that language very often. I fear that too often we think too little of our salvation. We'll talk about salvation as God's work, which is correct, but then we'll live as if it's our work. When we think of salvation as our work, we'll always be plagued by guilt and doubt. But when we realize that it is God's work alone, His perfect work, that our salvation is immersion in the Holy Spirit. It's the transformation of a soul. Well, then we'll walk in assurance. Not in fear, not in doubt, but walk in assurance that what God has done is right and it holds. John's ministry was a ministry of preparation. That's what the Old Testament said, and that's what uh, Mark verifies in his accounting of John's ministry. It's a ministry of preparation. And I wonder if you look at your life, have you thought about how you've been prepared for Jesus? 
If you're not a follower of Jesus, but you're here today investigating the claims of Christianity, wanting to learn more and more about the Bible, perhaps, so you can make a reasoned decision, well, I want you to consider the way that even without your knowing, God has been preparing you to meet Jesus. It might be our tendency to say, well, I'll prepare myself by going to church, by sinning less, by being the best person I can be. Or maybe you've been a part of a religious system where God seems to be perpetually angry towards you and so you have to appease Him through religious deeds. But that's not how we prepare ourselves for Jesus. We are prepared for Him through every heartache, through every challenge, through every temptation that we have failed and indulged in. See, God meets us in our sinful wilderness and calls us out of that place. You might even use your wilderness experience as a reason for not believing, but I'm telling you, God meets you there in all of your brokenness, all of your rebellion, all of your anger towards him, all of your doubt, every weakness, and he rescues you from it through Jesus Christ. He calls you out of that wilderness. Every experience prepares us for him. I heard a preacher say once, you can't have a testimony without a test. You can't have a message without a mess. In our brokenness, God prepares us through every experience to hear his voice and respond with faith. So when we step into Mark's gospel today, God's saving work is on full display. And what's it like? His saving work is radical good news in the face of a broken world. And God's saving work is a promise from God, and it's a promise that he has fulfilled by sending his messenger and by sending his son, Jesus Christ. When I was a young boy, maybe 11 years old, my grandparents took me and my brother, who's closest to me in age, on vacation with them to Colorado. And for a, a boy from flat Oklahoma, you know, bumpy Colorado is just incredible, amazing. And we went to all these different historical sites and, and we went through all these incredible scenic drives. And I remember one day we, we drove up Pikes Peak in Colorado Springs. And uh, Pikes Peak is just awesome. It's a beautiful view, great view, incredible. And uh, we're standing there looking out into all of God's creation, and uh, my brother Rory and I had a fight. <laughs> it was probably over something really important. Uh, and here we are standing in front of one of the grandest views in the continental United States, and uh, I'm fighting with my brother over something so stupid, right? It'd be so sad to read these eight verses and then yawn. These words spell out God's incredible, ferocious, tenacious, unstoppable love for you. One of my favorite writers, a guy named Brennan Manning, said this, we should be astonished at the goodness of God, stunned that he should bother to call us by name, our mouths wide open at his love, bewildered that at this very moment we are standing on holy ground. 
Let's be astonished that he loves us. Astonished that he saves us. Astonished at the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray together. Father, for some of us in here, we may have come in today thinking of how we can get to you, and yet your word tells us that you have come to us. We're too late. You made the promises long ago. You fulfilled the promises. You kept every one, and they are fulfilled in the beautiful life, the substitution death, and the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for coming to us and bringing us salvation. Thank you for your messenger who fulfilled your word and who prepared your people and through whom we see how near the Messiah truly is. And Lord, the people that John ministered to were amazed at the things they heard. But God, we've heard even more. We've seen even more. We know of the cross. We know of the empty tomb. We know of the ascension. We know of the uh, inner dwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. We know how all of this shakes out. So thank you for your amazing love towards us. Draw us to you now. Father, help sinners to hear your voice. Those who are lost among us, who are not walking with you, who have a religion that is morality-based, that is culturally approved, Father, let them fall in love with Jesus who came and died. Call them today to salvation. For my brothers and sisters who come in this morning beat up, scarred, wounded, struggling, Father, God, put steel in their legs, iron in their bellies to endure. In the beauty of the gospel, the power of the cross, to endure day by day in the grace and the strength that you give. Thank you for this story that encompasses every story that redeems every heartache, every brokenness. So we come to you with our yes, with our faith, with our sin. Jesus Christ, we trust you and you alone. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.